Father God, I thank you for the gift of your love and the grace and the mercy that that love represents. And Lord, my hope and prayer is that the reality of your love um, would, would find in our hearts a place to dwell, to change us in such a way that we look more and more like your son, Jesus, every single day. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, with the summer, and I, I, I know I, I'll get something thrown at me here for saying this, being halfway over already. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, bad. Um, the conversation on... Uh, Sports radio, at least in the Indy area, has already turned to football. And uh, for us in the Indianapolis area, they're talking about the Colts, of course. And uh, the Colts uh, coach, uh, Frank Reich, will uh, certainly be front and center in, in any number of interviews. And he's pretty good. He's pretty patient with the media. And he answers and he does all that. He's good with the fans, that kind of a thing. And the... But one of the things probably not going to be asked to, to Frank is questions about his playing career. See, uh, Frank uh, Reich never set any uh, uh, touchdown records. Uh, his career was one of a second string quarterback who played uh, not very often at all. And uh, he, he didn't have any touchdown records, no yards. You know, we're not going to see him wearing the gold you know, blazer as a Hall of Fame football player. Maybe as a coach, jury's still out on that, but not as a player. And yet, even still, he has done something as an NFL quarterback that no quarterback in the history of the NFL has ever done. And since has never happened again. It was 1993. The Buffalo Bills were making their way to a series of Super Bowls and lost every one, but we won't go there. And their superstar quarterback, who is Hall of Fame, Jim Kelly, was injured and unavailable for the first game of the playoffs, the wild card game. And they were going up the vaunted offense of Warren Moon and the Houston Oilers scoring machines. And as expected, uh, shortly into the third quarter, the Buffalo Bills were getting creamed. They were losing by 32 points, and everybody was leaving the stadium. At which point in time, Frank Reich led his team back on the most improbable comeback in the history of the NFL, throwing four touchdowns, sending the game into overtime in which they won on a field goal. Nobody has ever come back from 32 points down to win an NFL game except Frank Reich. And I was thinking about that story and I was reminded of another, another game, uh, 1984, the University of Miami against the University of Maryland. At that point in time, 
The University of Miami had all the bad boys, and they were winning championships and beating people and having an attitude while they were doing it. And then there was the University of Maryland, who, as expected, was being drubbed dutifully. And the coach puts in his second-string quarterback. I'd have to see the interview, don't know why he did it. But in goes the second-string quarterback who led the Maryland Terrapins six touchdowns, came back and beat the University of Miami. That second-string quarterback for the University of Maryland's name, Frank Reich. Lightning in a bottle. When he's on your sideline, you always feel like you got a chance. And he presided once in college, once in the, in the professional league, some of the, and in the professional, the greatest comeback of all time. The biggest reversal, the biggest turnaround that anybody has ever seen in an NFL game. You say, Tom, well, what's the point of these stories? We are in a story that is a turnaround story, right? The story of Esther is a big turnaround story. I mean, they were down like a hundred to nothing. And we see in ways that we never could have predicted, we see the movement and the providential hand of God at work. And after last week in Esther chapter 7, we begin to see the turnaround take place. King Xerxes, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, and his young queen, who he now knows is Jewish, and Mordecai, her older cousin, adopted father, was uh, uh, coming before the king, Esther did, to beg for the lives of her people because of a, a, a wicked man named Haman who was seeking the absolute... Uh, annihilation of all the Jewish people, period, in all of the Babylonian Empire. Esther interceded, and the turnaround began. At the end of chapter 7, Mordecai was hung on a, a post that he had prepared to hang Mordecai on, and he suffered the proverb that says, the one who digs a pit for another falls into it themselves. And that's where the story ended. And you see, the turnaround is not complete just yet. Because the king's edict is still in play, which says on March 7th of the next year, as some calculate these dates, the edict to destroy all the Jewish people still stands. And we find this scene continuing in chapter 8. Follow along and consider with me this question, this idea of the big turnarounds. Because you see, in your life and in my life, we are living in the reality, we have lived in the reality, and we will again where a big turnaround is needed. And it's so important that we understand who is the author of the big turnarounds. Beginning in verse 1, On that same day, King Xerxes gave the property of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. 
Then Mordecai was brought before the king, for Esther had told the king how they were related. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's property. Then Esther went again before the king, falling down at his feet and begging him with tears to stop the evil plot devised by Haman the Agagite against the Jews. And again the king held out the gold scepter to Esther, and so she rose and stood before him. And Esther said, if it please the king, and if I found favor with him, and if he thinks it is right, and if I am pleasing to him, let there be a decree that reverses the orders of Haman's son of Hamadatha the Agagite, who ordered that Jews throughout all the king's provinces should be destroyed. For how can I endure to see my people and my family slaughtered and destroyed? Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, I, I have given Esther the property of Haman, and he has been impaled on a pole because he tried to destroy the Jews. Now, go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name, telling them whatever you want and seal it with the king's signet ring. But remember that whatever has already been written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring can never be revoked. So on June 25th, the king's secretaries were summoned and a decree was written as exactly as Mordecai dictated it. It was sent to the Jews and the highest officers the governors and the nobles of all the 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. The decree was written in the scripts and languages of all the peoples of the empire, including that of the Jews. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Mordecai sent the dispatches by swift messengers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king's service. The king's decree gave the Jews in every city authority to unite to defend their lives. They were allowed to kill, slaughter, and annihilate anyone of any nationality or province who might attack them or their children and wives and to take the property of their enemies. And the day chosen for this event throughout the, all the provinces of King Xerxes was March 7th of the next year, the same date that the first edict would go into effect. A copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all peoples so that the Jews would be ready to take revenge on their enemies on the appointed day. So urged on by the king's command, the messengers rode out swiftly on fast horses bred for the king's service. The same decree was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. Then Mordecai left the king's presence wearing the royal robe of blue and white, the great crown of gold and an outer cloak of fine linen and purple. And the people of Susa celebrated the new decree. The Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere in every province and city. Wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had a great celebration and declared a public festival and holiday. And many of the people of the land became Jews themselves, for they feared what the Jews might do to them. Turnaround, a big turnaround of such a degree and such an, an, an extent that one of the biggest empires came to a screeching turn and headed a different direction. 
There are quite a few things to observe in this passage, of course, just highlighting a couple here this morning. In verse 1 and 2, uh, we, see, uh, uh, we see that the king, in the very same day, the day that Haman was executed, on that very same day, the king gave the property of Haman to Esther. So everything that he had, all of his wealth, all of his land, all of his whatever he had, went to Esther by order of the king. And we also find out there that the king had taken his signet ring off of Haman before he was executed. And here in these first two verses, he puts his signet ring on Mordecai, the one who had saved his life early in the story. We remember this. And in so doing, Mordecai now becomes the de facto prime minister of the Medo-Persian Empire. Number two, the property of Haman went to Esther. The position of Haman went to Mordecai. This big turnaround beginning to take place, beginning to take shape. And what we find from beginning to end of the scripture is that the big turnarounds are the inheritance of God's people. Not simply in this story for Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people, but now, today, all of God's people, all those responding in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ are inheritors of the biggest turnaround of them all. As you see, when we come to that place of acknowledging our need for a Savior, receiving Jesus by faith, what happens? A person moves from death to life, moves from being under the wrath and judgment of God to into the family of God. They move from dark to light. They move from wandering, wondering, to knowing and moving in purpose and in focus to the plans and purposes of God. Their destiny, their destiny moves from a place in hell to a place in heaven. Is this not the greatest turnaround of them all? And it is the inheritance of all those who by faith receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Big turnarounds are in the hand of God. And we, we will note that in this story here, we see that this turnaround had a here and now piece to it from this judgment of this decree that would have the Jews killed to now a new one that allows them to defend themselves. And we see Esther saved, Mordecai saved. And we don't have to look very long in Scripture before we see others who the turnaround wasn't in the here and now. We can look through the heroes of faith in the book of Hebrews and we see all kinds of turnarounds and we also hear those who gave their lives for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did they not receive their big turnaround? Oh, yes, they did. 
And they are in the presence of God receiving the blessing of it. The work of Christ to move them from separated from God to connected with God forever. The big turnaround is the inheritance of all those who by faith put their faith and trust in Jesus. So important that we understand that so that we enter into our days, into our circumstances, into our struggles, into our failures, into every every time and space and experience that you and I could think of. We enter with hope and courage, not despair and fear. Why? Because we've experienced the big turnaround. I know who I am and I know where I'm going. If this is my last day on planet earth, so be it. My last breath here is going to be followed up with my next breath in heaven. Praise to God. Paul would write, we grieve. We grieve with hope. And that is a Jesus-separated difference. And in order to see that hope and that courage to, to dwell in that, to see that grow in our life, there, there needs to be an attentiveness, specifically an attentiveness to Jesus. Scripture says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. So how do I not grow weary and lose heart? I have to give my attention to Christ, to Jesus. There I see the author of the turnarounds, the, the, the one who, who gives the turnarounds, and my attention is on him. Because you see, this whole world is really loud, and it's kind of obnoxious. And then everywhere you go is noise, noise, noise. And, and it's just been so wonderful to see, you know, all our families, we're going to go to a park, a national park, state park. We're just getting away from the noise. Because if we're not careful, the things of this old world, circumstances, situations, people, this, that, whatever, will drown out the wonder the love that God has for us. But with a mind that's set on things above, with an eye that's fixed upon Jesus, our hope and our courage is fueled and we don't forget. I've experienced the biggest turnaround of them all. From death to life. Oh, the joy in our souls in knowing who we belong to, why we're here and where we're going. God is the author of the big turnaround. Verse three through six, we watch and we see Esther. Some commentators, uh, as they're looking at the dates, uh, uh, put forward uh, this idea that there was approximately two months between verse two and three. That was a very fascinating study in my week this week. 
considering that reality, it was almost as if Esther and Mordecai were saying, okay, king, what are you going to do, right? You going to change this thing? Didn't happen. And the king was probably looking at them, hey, you're queen and you're prime minister. Are you guys going to do anything? And finally, there was this meeting again where Esther would come before the king. This time, not the same way that she came last time. Oh, certainly courage, 100%, because the king didn't ask for her. Without the scepter, she dies. But she comes not in, the, in, the, uh, uh, in this regal manner. She comes on her knees, crawling, weeping, begging God, not God, begging this king, little king. We'll talk about the big king here in a minute. This little king for mercy. Please. Have mercy on my people. I cannot bear to see them slaughtered, weeping. The king extends the scepter real quick before the guys jump in and she, you don't see her anymore. And, and, and then she stands up and she makes her plea. Her plea for her people. You see, there's something that happens in the heart of a person who experiences a big turnaround in life. There is a desire a, a growing passion that others experience the turnaround too. So sure, she just got all this stuff from Haman. Sure, Mordecai was now the prime minister. Maybe they're okay. Well, that isn't good enough. All my people are still under the death sentence. And her heart was broken. In our world, we hear people who are so excited about a big turnaround in their life, be it a health change, a financial change, a, 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 a marriage saved story, a addiction being broken, all these types of things. There's a passion that grows in the hearts of people who experience those for others to experience the same thing because they know the wonder of it. And they're living in the freedom of it. And they long for others to experience the same thing. Esther's big turnaround inspired, continued to fuel an existing passion for the lives of her people. It is one of the evidences that the big turnaround has taken place inside of me. My desire for others to experience it too. And so here she comes, life on the line, begging for the lives of her people. Fast forward to today. What about God's people today? A little more personal. What about me? What about you today? How, how often are we before the big K king, weeping on behalf of the people around us. The people around us who are yet to know the wonder of guilt and shame moved away, of forgiveness of sin and peace with God and hope everlasting, knowing that a room is prepared for them in the Father's house. Do we care? Do we weep? Oh God, please, my child, 
my brother, my mom, my dad, my best friend, my neighbor, the annoying guy in the cubicle next to me. All of them need Jesus. Do we care? Big turnaround has taken place in our heart. And our souls and life is made new in Christ. How can we not want others to know the love of Jesus? How can we not? Esther, her heart was all there, weeping for the lives of her people. Oh, that we would be people who weep for the souls of others. I was reminded of Paul's comment in one of his letters that absolutely floors me every time I I read it and the implications. He says, I would, I would gladly give up heaven. I, I would forfeit my own soul if doing so would mean the salvation of my people. For him, this was not a, a, hy- a hyperbole. It was his heart for those without Christ. Oh, I pray that God would recreate that heart in me. Weep for other souls. In doing so, it will keep us focused on the things that really matter in this world. When we come to the end of the story, there is this incredible turnaround, uh, this incredible movement uh, uh, that has taken place in these two chapters, and now a new edict has been sent out, and the Jewish people are now permitted to defend themselves against their attackers. Now the whole scene is changed, and they enter into this place of rejoicing and celebration because you see God's big turnarounds result in celebration, and they, they result in joy. I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. And there is joy in that. Oh, I loved one commentator's uh, 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 comment about this. He said, joy is to be the flavor of God's people. Isn't that cool? What's, What's your flavor? What's my flavor? Is it joy? As a Jesus follower, the joy of the Lord is to be my strength. The joy of the Lord is is testimony to the surrender of a life to the Spirit of God who produces that joy, you see? The joy is to be the flavor of God's people. Isaiah was writing this in 61, verse 1 through 3. This is also... The scripture that Jesus read while in a synagogue one day. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies to all who mourn in Israel. He will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. And the righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for His own glory. Oh, if we were to turn back a few pages to the end of Esther chapter 3, the beginning of Esther chapter 4, we would find the grieving and the mourning people of Israel. We would find in verse 3 of chapter 4, Mordecai clothed in dust and ashes, weeping at this edict that has been sent out to destroy the people of Israel. And now in chapter 8, we see Mordecai once again, no longer in dust and ashes, burlap. We see him now in royal robes with a crown on his head. I, the Lord says, I Give beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing, a festive praise instead of despair. No way when Isaiah penned those words that the people of Israel missed this story. Crown, no longer ashes. Why? Because God is the author of the great turnarounds and joy is to be the hallmark of God's people. Uh, I, I, I love this word. One, one uh, a preacher uses it a lot to describe the picture of, of how Jesus' followers should, should feel to others. He says, we are to be winsome. And I, and I love the word for the, the emotional picture of a person who is attractive, a person who has joy in their hearts, a person who cares about others. There is an attractiveness to the person who is following Jesus because they're like him, a winsomeness. And, and then in just the very spelling of the word, you separate it and God uses you to win some for Jesus. Are we winsome people? Proclaiming to be a Jesus follower, are we winsome in character and in nature? Does the joy of the Lord, is it really our strength? Does it lead us forward? All too often, too often God's people are, are kind of grumpy, frumpy, and dumpy. Like, that's not the three that we want to be. You know, it's, a, it's like the bad joke, right? The horse walks into the bar and the bartender says, hey, buddy, why the long face, you know? Told you it was a bad joke. That shouldn't be the people of God. No, there's joy even when the tears fall. There's grace, abundant, even in our grief. There is hope even in the midst of our woundedness. As a believer in Jesus, life or death, we just simply cannot lose. 
And that should bring, bring great joy to your hearts today. And people that are feeding that joy and surrendering to the Holy Spirit, they have an attitude of gratefulness, of thankfulness, giving thanks at all times. At all times, you will find a person uh, who has experienced the great turnaround, who is giving thanks to God. You will see the fruit of joy in their life and the praise of God on their lips because they're always remembering and always giving thanks. And it is a giving thanks in all times regardless of the circumstances because God is always good. God is always love. God is always at work. God is always preparing a place for you. God is always thinking about you. God is preparing good works for you all the time. Does that make you smile today? wonder how the love of God moves us to this place of celebration. The big turnaround has taken place. The desire in our hearts grows for others to experience the big turnaround in their life. And we live reflecting the praise we see here in the people of Israel at this new declaration that has just gone out. Praising, celebration. See, God is a God of the big turnarounds. And His people are the undeserving recipients. Wonderful. And my hope and prayer is that each and every one of you here in this room each and everybody watching at home, that you've experienced the biggest turnaround of them all. That you know that your sins are forgiven and that you are at peace with God and that heaven is your new destiny. And that's my prayer. Father God, we come to you today and we acknowledge the wonder of your glory and your grace. We know that apart from Christ, there would be no big turnaround available to us. And yet, because of Christ, the throne room of heaven has been thrown open, and we all have access to the King. May we enter boldly and humbly and ask for that mercy and that forgiveness. In his name I pray, amen.